You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. This episode is brought to you by Zeiss. Hunters need good glass, and with a Zeiss SFL or Smart Focus Lightweight Binoculars, you'll be on the hill longer and seeing further. The lens diameter has been reduced by 2 mil, making it possible to decrease their overall weight by up to 20% compared to the Zeiss Victory SF models. Not only that, the SFL binoculars are up to 30% lighter than comparable products from competitors. Find your local Zeiss SFL stockist at www.osaustralia.com.au. All right, welcome back, guys. Tonight we have Phil Donato, the independent member for Orange, joining us with the New South Wales election coming up. And a lot of people might not know, or maybe they do know, he is an avid hunter. Probably not as much anymore being a politician and the hours they work, <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll definitely be finding out tonight. Phil, welcome to the show. Yeah, g'day, Matt. G'day, Dodge. Thanks for having me. No worries. Welcome to the team. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. How are you going down there in the Highlands? Yeah, I'm good down here. It's uh, chasing a bit of sunshine around lately. It's been nice for a change, a bit dry underfoot. Yeah, it's dried out. It has dried out. You're out Orange Way? Yeah. It's a bit drier out there, I'd say. Yeah, it is dry. It, it, we had a pretty wet winter, obviously, like most of you know, southeast Australia, I guess. But yeah, it has dried out considerably, even in the last um, couple of weeks, really. So you wouldn't think that we had floods and you know record rainfalls mm. um, during the winter when you see some of the fields and paddocks at the moment that sort of it's um looks very dry at the moment which is and some of the farmers are a little bit worried about it actually yeah i've heard heard the words drought thrown around again and heading that direction but yeah something it's funny with this weather we've had i mean i'm what am i 33 and i've been hunting for 12 or 13 years now yeah and when i started it was all drought yeah so all the way i hunted the way i shot Driving around paddocks, you drive wherever you wanted. Yeah, you can see. It was fine. <laughs> we had, no you know, you wouldn't, wouldn't leave ruts or – well, you wouldn't leave ruts. You wouldn't get bogged. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I took Matt out there oh. doing some rucal one night and we got bogged and like, and we oh. were on the track yeah. and we got bogged. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing worse just, than getting bogged, especially when you're spotlighting, right? But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, look, I think the drier weather certainly makes it easier to get around on a vehicle, that's for sure, on the tracks and crossings and – you know, you can generally there's less ground cover, so you can see stumps, logs, rocks, all that mm. sort of stuff as well. You know, right on the track. Even you can see the animals. Yeah, you see the, that's right. the rabbits and foxes a little bit yeah. easier. But I think um, I know locally around here, there's a lot of pigs and deer around at the moment, and um, they've had a pretty good sort of last couple of seasons. There's been plenty of feed around um, grass. I was out only out probably about two months ago at a mate of mine's property, uh, about an hour and a half away from here, and um, there's a lot of pigs there, but they were hard to see because the ground cover, you know, was two and a half, three mm. foot high. So, um, but it will die. It will start dying down now. I'd say, as a, you know, we're getting into autumn, and it'll be good to get out there and get stuck into a few of them. Yeah, hundred percent. So, Phil, what's um? Let's can you just give our listeners a bit of a background on yourself, like uh, where you've come from, how you ended up in Parliament as a minister, and all that. Yeah, yeah, no worries, Matt. So, um. Well, I grew up in Sydney, southwestern Sydney, uh, as a kid, and um, I'm, uh, you know, my parents uh, came from an Italian background. Both my parents, uh, my mum and father, were were um, Italian. Or, you know, my mum came out when she was about four. So, typical sort of immigrant story, uh, I guess. You know, um, my father's family came out, uh, immigrated to Australia 
uh, in the in the 20s, in fact, 1920s, so a while ago. But they were farmers and mainly market gardeners and orchardists around Liverpool, Moorbank, Bankstown at the time. So, you know, um, I suppose always being involved on the land, there was always, you know, things to be shot, whether it be rabbits or, or ducks or quail or foxes or whatever it was at the time uh, on the farm. And then uh, my mother's side, um, my grandfather on my mother's side was always a very keen hunter. Uh, mainly for, for 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 subsistence or sustenance, you know, for food. Um, not really trophies, but, you know, typical sort of small game, you know, rabbits, ducks, quails, all that sort of stuff, hares. So as from a young age, I sort of was, was always out, you know, from about the age of six or seven, I remember sort of going out with my dad and my uncles and um, my grandfather to, you know, we'd go hunting or shooting or rabbiting or ferreting or, you know, whatever it was, Um and they were, you know, good memories, obviously, going back that, that long ago. And I suppose um, it sort of sparked an interest in me that I was something I was I really enjoyed, getting out in the outdoors. I've always been someone who likes being outside and physically active and all that sort of stuff. So, we, um, yeah, we used to do a lot of – and my parents had a, a fruit shop, so there wasn't a lot of spare time. You know, they only they used to work six days a week. Sunday was the only day they were closed. So we – my dad and I and my uncles, we often go, you know, up to the Blue Mountain, up near Lithgow or down near Goulburn or we had Yass and a few other places we used to go shooting, you know, small game predominantly. And it was just mainly for meat, you know, rabbits mainly. Um, and I suppose as a youngster, you, you you start getting interested in hunting and reading reading magazines and you always dream of shooting, you know, your first fox or your first pig or your goat or a deer. You know, deer was like something, you know, legendary back then. And my uncle, one of my uncles, was a, he still is a very keen hunter and um, he was a bit of a mentor of mine. He used to go away a lot and used to start heading out to western New South Wales, out to a place called Nimiji, which is um, from Sydney, was a, bit, a long way. Um, but, uh, you know, used to shoot get a lot of goats out there at the time and a few pigs. So I just really enjoyed getting in the outdoors uh, with my family, with my dad or my uncles and hunting and just sort of it just organically grew, I suppose, from that. And, um, being involved in that sort of uh, tradition and customs and culture. We always pretty much ate what we shot, really. So there was always that respect for the animals and the quarry that we were hunting. And then um, when I became an adult, you know, got my license, um, had a minor's permit. I can still remember going for my minor's permit. Funny story is I was, um, I think I was 12 years, 12 years of age. And uh, from about the age of eight or nine, I used to buy Sporting Shooter magazine every month. And I used to walk up to the news agency. I think it was like, I don't know, 3 or $4, whatever it was back then. And I'd ask my mum, I'd do some chores in the fruit shop and she'd give me some pocket money every week, you know. Anyway, so every month I knew on the 20th of every month, the, the following month, Sporting Shooter would come out, right? So uh, I used to go up to the news, the news agent every month and buy the next edition of Sporting Shooter and read all the articles from Nick Harvey and Cole Allison and all those blokes, you know. Anyway, uh, we... Um, uh, and, that was, and I wasn't much of a reader as a kid. I didn't really enjoy reading books or, or novels, but I used to enjoy reading and flicking through hunting magazines, you know. So mum saw it as a good thing. At least I was reading something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when I went for my minor's permit, I was 12 years of age and uh, went to the local police station at Bass Hill. Actually, it was Bass Hill Police Station. And I'll never forget this. I went to my dad and um, it was it was after school one day. I came home and... Um, I said to my dad, oh, let's go get my minor's permit. Dad goes, all right. So we go, and it was raining. I don't forget this, it was raining. It would have been about 3.30, 4 o'clock. We, walk, we drive down to Bassel Police Station, walk in, and the police station was really busy. It was changeover, a shift. There was a lot of police hanging around, coming, going. It was wet. wet. You know, it was a miserable sort of day. 
winter's day and um because i was born in august so it would have been on my birthday i reckon and uh, i walked into the police station and there was this cranky old sergeant in the station and he looked at me and my dad says oh we've come for a minor's permit for my son and he looked at me you know down on me and he said um what's the difference between a center fire and a rim fire that was i can never i'll never forget that he asked me that question and I said, oh, well, you know, center fire's got a primer in the back and the rim fire, you know, fires from the, the firing pin hitting the, the rim of the case, you know. And he looked at me and he probably thought, I was probably the only kid that ever was able to answer a question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did the test, passed the test and got my minus permit. And, you know, so, but when I turned an adult, 18, I wanted to go on. My dad bought me a triple two when I was 14. Uh, I still got it. It's an old Smith & Wesson model 1500 which is now the Hauer, I guess, because it went from Smith & Wesson to CMC uh, and then Hauer took over CMC. So I've still got it. Beautiful, beautiful old gun. Shot a lot of game with it. Don't use it much anymore, unfortunately, but um, it's sitting in there in the safe. Kids use it sometimes. Yeah, so I got that when I was 14 and then started getting into shooting, you know, things like goats and roos and, and pigs and and that was all, all well and good. And then... Um, my uncle was doing a lot of samba hunting down in Victoria and, you know, I'd hear stories from him going down the Wanangatta and down the Catherine and places like that that, you were, that, that you know, you'd often read in, about in the magazines and I'd look at his photos and all that sort of stuff and and uh, had this ambition of, you know, and, and goal one day, a dream of going down into that sort of Kai country and hunting those big big animals in the, in the Victorian Alps. So when I turned 18, I finished school and um, saved up some money and I, I, uh, I went and bought my first rifle and I went to Mick Smith's, as it was called back then in Broadway in Sydney. And uh, I went with my uncle, actually. We went together Saturday morning and I bought a, um, it was a Ticker 3006, which I've still got. And it was a, not the model 55 or 65, it was a model after that. So before the T3s and all that sort of stuff. I think it's a model 558 from memory uh, or 658. Beautiful gun, you know, timber walnut stock and, so I bought this um, 3006 and and then started sort of hunting deer, fallow deer around you know around sort of down around Goulburn and uh, Tarrigo and and Bungendore. We had permission on a few properties down there, so got into the fallow deer hunting scene and then that sort of morphed into hunting going down. Another got involved with the ADA, um, Australian Deer Association, so and a few other clubs, the Peen Hunters Club and. Um, uh, the New South Wales deer stalkers as well and just got into sort of hunting other, you know, Samba, went on a few club hunts, but yeah, went down, did a few trips into the Wollongatta and still enjoy going down the Gatta when I can. So yeah, that's that's sort of how it sort of evolved. And then when I left school, I, I went to uni for a year. I didn't really like what I was doing at uni. It wasn't quite what I, was, what I thought I wanted to do. And I dropped out and this was in 1991. Interest rates were 17 or 18%. The you know pretty much in the recession it was it was hard to get a job as luck would have it my cousin uh, was married to a fellow who owned a uh, Italian continental cake shop in uh, in Liverpool and he was looking for an apprentice pastry chef and um, I had nothing else going really uh, and I thought well I'll give it a try and so I did that and actually completed my apprenticeship there and then sort of midway through through doing that um, sort of looked for other options to do it wasn't what I really wanted to do in the long term. So then an option came about joining the police force. Um, so I joined the police force in the mid-90s. 
and went to Goulburn, went to the police academy and then graduated from the academy and was stationed at Liverpool, Macquarie Fields, um, did some time at Cabramatta on some heroin drug enforcement stuff that was pretty rampant at the time around there. It was in the detectives at, you know, around Macquarie Fields as well for, for a while and doing plain clothes work and then um, transferred to Wollongong um, and then got into the police prosecutor's branch in in 2003, I think it was, and became a police qualified police prosecutor representing the police in court. But during that time in the police force, I still continued hunting, although it was getting harder because my wife and I had started a family and we had young kids and, you know, we had five, we had five boys under six, so it was pretty hectic at home. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of time to go away hunting and we didn't have a, you know, but, and certainly no international hunting, just mainly local stuff, you know, um, fallow and I'd try and do a samba hunt once a year, backpack hunt or go down into the gutter or something like that. And, um, yeah, and then that sort of just, uh, we moved to Orange. I got a transfer to Orange in about 2005. Uh, we wanted to get out of, I suppose, we wanted to bring the kids up in the country just to give them, you know, a bit, bit more grounded sort of education and experience and so we moved uh, i was successful in getting a transfer to orange and we moved to orange and we've been in orange ever since and then i was elected to parliament in 2016 at a by-election which at the time there was a greyhound ban which the government had imposed and were also amalgamating forcibly local councils and they were two big issues in the orange electorate uh, which caused a lot of frustration and anger and resentment against the government against the especially the national party um, which had held the seat of Orange since 1947, right? They only had four members, I think, in in you know since in 70 years. Uh, it was a pretty safe National Party seat. You know, they they held it by about 24% margin, uh, pretty safe seat. Uh, and I didn't expect to win. I didn't, you know, I ran for the Shooters Fishers Farmers Party because I've always voted for them in the upper house, and I've always been a supporter of 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 the Shooters Party and Shooters Fishers Farmers Party as it changed names to. And, um, you know, I, I ran for them in, in 16 and then, you know, was successful in being elected and was the first lower house member of that party, sorry, first member of that party to ever be elected into a lower house seat in Australia. So I was elected to Parliament and then, you know, on 2019 I was re-elected again with a pretty substantial sort of margin and was successful in getting another two members elected, Roy Butler and Helen Dalton, uh, members for Barwon and Murray as well. So it sort of started to grow and, and be a strong presence. And up until, you know, I, I left the party in December of last year because of certain circumstances that were, you know, um, weren't able to be resolved. And, you know, I was left with no other choice. I'm a man of integrity. I'm a man of my word. And, um, you know, in my own personal views, values and beliefs, I was left with no other option. I had to leave the party and run as an independent for the uh, for the election in, in, in only a few weeks' time now. So so we'll see how we go. But, um, you know, I've always continued as best I can, although it's been difficult the last few years. Um, hunting, fishing, I always enjoy getting in the outdoors. I've brought my, my sons up, you know, with taking them out camping and hunting and fishing and all that, the outdoors and um, been to New Zealand a number of times, shot tar, you know, a couple of tar and seek a deer and, you know, really enjoy that sort of mountain wilderness hunting. That's what I really enjoy doing, um, you know, and even backpacking, hiking, still do that. Last year we went down, my son and I went to the Dartmouth with our boat. We took the boat across and didn't shoot a samba, but we had a great week down in the in, in the Dart and hopefully get a chance to do that maybe this winter as well. But um, 
and explore a bit of country. But yeah, I love that sort of wilderness style hunting. That's probably my preferred method, and there's, there's no guarantee. Like um, you know, I've come back from overseas, not fired shots. You know, like it's not about shooting. It's all more about the experience, getting the outdoors in the wilderness country, and you know, putting your wits against the uh, trophy animal. So still enjoy doing that, although I don't get much time in this current role to do a lot of hunting, unfortunately. But um, that's a trade-off, I guess. That's a if if you could write an autobiography, I think you've just done it in about fourteen minutes. So if we can just convert that to text, all we need to do now is a foreword. And a, Sorry, George mate. loves an audio book, so uh, I, that's a, that was perfect for me. I don't have to read the book. He'll probably put you to sleep, <laughs> mate. Talking about hunting does not put me to sleep. It's the other way of thing. The other way around. I want to go back to your the whole Italian heritage and all the rabbits. Yeah. Surely you've either, one, still eat rabbit because you love it, two, never want to eat another one because you're sick of it. <laughs> Which one is it? Uh, yeah, look, we I still don't mind eating rabbit. Um, actually, I've got a place not far from where I live that has a bit of a rabbit problem and uh, often go there, especially um, uh, this time of year, although I haven't had a chance this, you know, lately. But um, and we, my son and I, you know, and on Sunday afternoon, we might just go out there and, you know, two or three hours and shoot 20 or 30 rabbits, you know. I haven't shot rabbits for a long time. Like I've sort of just got back into it and you forget how much fun it is, you know, like just yes. just either sitting off a warren and sniping them off or walking through the paddocks with a shotgun and flushing them from your feet and, and you know, shooting them that way. Um, you forget. You're one of my favourite game. I, I yeah. mean, I've done a lot of deer hunting, yeah. but you for, like you said, you forget the reactiveness yeah. of shooting a, a rabbit with a twenty-two and yeah. they jump and flip yeah, and yeah, carry yeah, on. Yeah. And- well, I, I had my old Bruno. It's funny you said it. That's right this particular property there was a lot of warrens and you can sit off a warren for an hour and you know you might shoot seven or eight ten ten rabbits over the course of that time you know they'll come out pop up shoot them they'll duck back down a few minutes later someone will pop up somewhere else and so you can you can have a bit of fun and um but i was losing quite a few kicking kicking down the burrows right through the 22 with the 22 long rifle and that was confusing you know um high velocity hollow point ammo so i i went and bought myself a 17 hmr <laughs> I thought I'll fix this problem. Big difference. <laughs> I want to recover yeah, these buggers. Meat. I don't want a bloody hunter. less meat for grandma. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you, you shoot them in the head or neck. It's um, yeah, pretty spectacular. But and obviously, you can shoot a bit further out too. But so don't you don't lose too many down burrows with the seventeen HMR, mate. I can tell you that. <laughs> I lost uh, I lost one once to a fox. Uh, it was okay. a twenty-two Magnum, and shot it, and it was just on the edge of the blackberries, and it, it headed sort of just in the blackberries, yeah. and. Gave out one or two squeals and then went quiet, yeah. so it died. But it was a good 80-odd metres away and I had to go through a gate to get to that paddock. And a fox turned up and the listeners will know foxes are the bane of my existence. I've missed more foxes than I've shot. Yeah. And I was slinging lead at this thing and it didn't care. It just went in, grabbed the rabbit and ran away. Hungry fox. <laughs> yeah, he's, well, he knew I'd miss. Yeah. <laughs> so he was pretty safe in my company. Yeah. Oh, foxes are good fun. I do enjoy shooting foxes. Well, I enjoy whistling foxes, actually. That's another thing that, um, you know, I used to do a bit more as a kid. And I, I only recently, um, a couple of years ago, I took a friend a friend out who's new to hunting and um, and we said, oh, let's just try some fox whistling, you know. just to, It was a really nice gully with heaps of blackberries and, you know, good view and, there was a lot of foxes around. Anyway, we blew the whistle and, you know, within about 30 seconds, we see this fox coming from about 200 yards away, making its way up. And we were sort of like, oh, shit, this is pretty good. 
And it came, anyway, he shot it from about at about 15 metres and he thought it was a, the most fun he's ever had. You know, <laughs> how cool was this? <laughs> Calling this, whistling this fox in, you know. A mutual friend of ours, Phil, Keith Drain. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's been on a few trips with you and done some filming yeah, stuff when you were down on the Samba and things. He uh, He's probably, well, I'd probably put him up there as the best fox caller I've come across. Yeah, right. You know, and he's uh, he's done a lot of whistling yeah. on a few of his blocks, and yeah. I've been uh, been with him one of those times. But yes, yeah. uh, oh, yeah, so. he's, he's a good fella, Keith. He, um, he is Keith, and I've been friends for years. Yeah, no, so. good fella. He, uh, yeah, he did do some filming. We did try and um, we went down to Victoria on a sambar hunt. We didn't. Where'd we go? I think we're going into the Gatta. <laughs> I don't know yes. if we made it. <laughs> um, I think it rained a lot, or something. Yeah, or, yeah. Or someone in the group shot something, but not where he was filming. Yeah. Or? Yeah, I can't remember now. I didn't shoot anything. I did see a, a good one with him. Oh, we saw, I saw the top of its antlers going through the um, scrub, but we didn't see its body. It was in some pretty tight, heavy scrub. But um, no, that was that's right. He did some he did some camera work uh, for us, and we filmed an episode. I think it might be on YouTube actually somewhere. <laughs> I have one more food related question, yeah. Matt. <laughs> You wouldn't believe it. But um, sorry, Dodge. Pastry. Sorry, Dodge. Getting back to your question, I still enjoy eating rabbit, and um, you know, like what they say, it's like KFC, or you know, there's so many different ways yeah. you can cook it. You know, and it, and it does. You, you, it, it could be KFC, couldn't it? But I like it. KFR. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But I like it. Um, you know, baked in like a casserole type thing, and with sauce and you know, vegetables and yeah. But yeah, no, rabbit. Rabbit is really nice. Are you pulling the bones out after? I've only eaten it a few times, and every time it's just full of bones. Yeah, it's full of bones. I just eat, leave the bone, like yeah, just pull the bones out as you're eating it. But you've got to be careful. It's just part of the. You've got to be careful. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they shot it with a shotgun, you've got to be careful for the pellets too. <laughs> Get it stuck in your teeth. <laughs> Break your tooth. <laughs> I have a pastry chef question. Yeah. <laughs> when you. He's, he's got a nickname. You. Sorry, Phil. He's got a nickname on this show. He's called Solo Eater. So because he, he looks, a, he looks a bit like Remy Warren, but he loves the feet. Like and Warren, uh, it, the well, Remy Warren's the solo hunter. So yeah, 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 yeah. That's where they get it from. But uh, yeah. Anyway, back to my top-notch um, questions here. Yeah. Pastry chef. Yeah. When you moved into the police force, I'm assuming you went through Goulburn yeah. training. Yep. Did that come in handy in the cooking <laughs> and consumption of donuts? <laughs> No, nah, probably quite the opposite, actually. You get turned off eating cakes because you make so many of them, you know. It, it's... <laughs> oh, look, we didn't really do many donuts, to be honest. We sort of made a lot of Italian stuff, so um, cannolis, I don't know if you're Oof. They're quite nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't pretend like I don't know these things. <laughs> so we used to make a Cobbety lot of sh- We used to make a hell of Cobbety shop. Yeah. Matt, just near you, the best little cannolis. I uh if I ever need Beautiful. food, Which one's I that? literally call up Dodge and just say, I'm here. <laughs> you know, where do I go? And he's just, he's a walking encyclopedia or a map to get me there. Uh, there's a little shop in Cobbity on the main stretch, and it's just called the Cobbity General Store. Now, they don't make it, they buy it yeah. in from a little bakery somewhere, yeah. but they're, fr- they're fresh every day. Yeah. And, you know, and they do a Cristoli at Christmas time yeah, as well. Yeah, it's yeah, just, nice. yeah. Well, I think, actually, I think I know where they're coming from because um, a couple that I used to work with, when I did my apprenticeship, they opened, they've got a little bakery out of their garage in Grassmere, just out of Camden. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't be surprised. And they're quite, they're, they're quite good pastry chefs. They're a husband and wife now. They got married. But um, that, so I, I wouldn't be surprised Canoli at Cobbity come from there. And if that's the case, they'd yeah, be well, pretty, 
It'd be Mickey Mouse. I wouldn't mind finding that little back door entrance so I don't have to buy them at full price from Coffee <laughs> Shop because nothing there is cheap. <laughs> nothing is cheap. But I'm glad this this uh, hunting podcast has turned back into a food podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, you know, food's very important, isn't it? You know, and that's really <laughs> that's, and that's what you know originally you know, hunting was for food, right? That was originally the reason for it. So I think there's always been that strong connection between hunting and food. Yeah. So you said before you've done a bit of international stuff. What have you? Uh, yeah, mainly New Zealand. Yeah, just New Zealand in terms of my international hunting. Um, yeah, I've probably been there. I don't know six or seven times now. So mainly to the South Island. Although I have hunted seeker up in the Central North Island, but been on a couple of uh, tar trips. And these are just wilderness hunts where we, you know, a few mates organise, you know, a chopper and we we fly into the Dobson or, or, you know, another valley, one of those big valleys and um, stay at a hut usually and um, hunt from there. And they're always good fun. Like I love that, like I said, that wilderness sort of hunting and, and obviously New Zealand's so close. It's such a beautiful country and, and so picturesque in those mountains. But, yeah, tar and, and chamois as well, although I haven't actually been able to shoot a chamois. I've done a couple of chamois hunts, but I haven't pulled the trigger on one yet. But, um, yeah, we hunted chamois around Wanaka in that sort of country, around the shark's tooth, um, chop it into some back country there where we actually camped. We didn't stay in the hut there. We actually camped in tents. We got stuck in a tent for three days with a massive storm, which which wasn't much fun. Five blokes. It's very boring. Five blokes. Yeah. And stuck in a – luckily the tent was quite big. It was like an eight-man tent, but um, we couldn't get – for three days, it just, it just you know – a massive storm and wind squalls and snow and you know it was just I don't know how the tent held up to be honest. It was only- There's also <laughs> not a whole lot of words to describe that smell. No, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Five guys stuck yeah. in a tent. So you get you get cabin fever, don't you, when you're stuck three days in a tent? You know. So there's so much card games you can play with. Each yeah, other. and we we had a fair bit of alcohol, so that helped as well. So we just <laughs> once again we just drank and cooked uh, food. That's all pretty much you could do, and and tell jokes and talk. Shit and, <laughs> all that sort it's of probably stuff. one of your more memorable trips now yeah but like i said I, I honestly don't know we weren't in a look we weren't in a high quality tent we were in a fairly budget sort of coleman tent i think it might have been or something like that you know just a, a kmart sort of tent that we bought certainly wasn't a four season seam sealed sort of tent and i remember at night you could hear the squalls coming down the down the valley to where we were you could hear it, it would the, the crescendo of sound and would intensify as I was getting closer and, you know, and each squall would last probably about a minute and it was just bashing the roof of the tent down almost and we were laying in our sleeping bags onto our faces. That's how much flex was in the, and I'm thinking this tent's got a bit destroyed. <laughs> but, but to its credit, it held up. It held up. We actually had our ice picks um, that we had with us that we hired over there as tent pegs just to sort of secure it in the ground. That's how, um, yeah, but... Um, well, then it, then it cleared, the weather cleared, and we got out, and it was, um, we got out, and we wanted to spear up this side valley that we hadn't been to, like, hadn't had the chance to get up, and you wouldn't believe it, a bloody chopper flies in, and, um, you know, flies over us, and flies into this valley where we're heading up, and then we heard a, about 10, a volley of about 10 shots, <laughs> and then we come back, and there's like, you know, as we're walking, it flies back about 20 minutes later, and it's got two chamois strung up underneath it, you know? Which made it pretty, made us pretty cranky at the time. Yes, that's the guided hunting on public land situation in New Zealand. Yeah, pretty pretty disappointing. Um, but yeah, so I hunted, I hunted the west coast as well, um, being the red deer ballot and the harsh ballot. 
hunted uh, in the uh, Waiatato um, Valley, which is um, not far from Mount Aspiring, one of those big valleys there that, that runs out into um, into Harst. Uh, we didn't. We were just we we had to apply for a block, and I think we picked week two, and they still weren't roaring. Um, and in that tight stuff, made it pretty hard. Uh, we couldn't get up. We were hoping we could get to the tops, but where it was open, but it was you know we weren't able to get to the tops on our block. We tried, and we you know we tried pretty hard. We saw a couple of deer, no stags. We were just stag hunting, trophy hunting. Yeah, we saw a hind and a yearling and. But, you know, a lot of it was up close, you know, 15, 20 metres sort of visibility. And when they're not roaring, it makes it pretty hard. So they started roaring, I think, the night before we were due to come out. You know, we started hearing them roaring in the valley. Always the way. And it's and that's a pretty good valley. Some of the best those Otago red stags have been taken in that valley over the years, you know, especially during the sort of glory days of the 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, there was, there was some big stags taken out of that valley. Some good bloodlines in there, but... Um, also hunted seeker on the central north island um, on uh, up at Namatea. So I don't know if you had a chance to go over to Namatea. It's on private property. It's a, um, but it's free range on private property. It's certainly not fenced or enclosed. Um, they got some of the best genetics, seeker deer genetics, and, and red deer now in the central north island. And some of the great, you know, some of the big seeker heads come out of there. I shot a, I shot a, a seeker that went about one eighty. Um, nice, mm. a nice eight-point seeker, and I took my son over, my youngest boy over at the time. I think he was fourteen or fifteen. He shot a cull. Yeah, great trip. You know, saw lots of deer there, <laughs> which was good. Um, it's good to see a lot of deer. Um, although finding a trophy was still hard, but just to see the numbers of deer is always, you know, really good. And that's that's a top spot if anyone gets a chance to go to Namatea. It's it's um, it's meant to be the largest freehold private property on the, on the North Island. Eighty. 80 something thousand acres, I think. So, um, a lot of land. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's got a combination of, um, pretty, you know, beach, natural beach forest and open grazing, you know, snow tussock and some pretty big, big guts and ridges and gorges and river systems. It's pretty, yeah, beautiful, beautiful spot. And like I said, a lot of deer there. So, um, that was that was a few years ago now. Yeah, but that's that's been the extent really of my international hunting. I haven't had a chance, unfortunately, yet to get to um, North America or Africa, although I'd love to. But you know, I was, <laughs> my wife and I started a family pretty young, and we 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 had <laughs> five kids pretty close, so there wasn't really a lot of time or, or or money really for for a lot of that international sort of stuff. So it's been put on the back burner a bit. But yeah, hopefully. Maybe the next couple of years I get over to some of those places. It's good to good to hear you spruiking New Zealand because it seems to be the first step for most Australians yeah. on the international hunting side of things. You've you've ticked most of the boxes. You said it's close. Yeah, it's accessible. Yeah, uh, you can take your own firearms. Yeah. It was a little bit easier back then than yeah, it is now, it's, but it's, it's not it's impossible. Now. I know. Just since has made it a bit hard. Well, yeah, she did, and then she's out now. But um, yeah, so it's just. It's a great stepping stone for people if they want to try the international stuff. Yeah. And like you said, it's not about the shooting part. Yeah. If you want to do that, come with me and we'll go on a guided hunt and mm. guarantee something. Mm. But if you want to work for it and earn it, mm. there's, there's a lot of free range yeah, options. there is. There is. And it's got Did a, you stay in Haast when you were going through? Uh, yeah, we had a – I think we had a night in Haast. Um, not much. It's, it's uh, not much I think there. We stopped at the pub there. The it's hard, got the, the hard antler in. It's, yeah, it's got the um, 
was it the largest chamois, I believe? It's a, I yeah. think it's a nanny chamois and the yeah, thing's yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hanging on the wall. But it's also, just for your interest, Matt, it'll be useless information. It was like one of the last towns in New Zealand to get internet reception. And it's only recently, like as of, I think it was 2019, they got internet. It's pretty, it's pretty remote the, down there. The locals were all up in arms because they wanted to stay that way because <laughs> the tourists, tourists didn't stop. Yeah. And they wanted to keep keep that. But um, I was over for there. all the hunters and the safety, they needed internet. Oh, there's some good hunting um, in, around Haas, that's for sure. Um, chamois and, and tar and, and deer, obviously. Um, but and good fishing too, and white baiting, and you know it's a big popular spot for white baiting when the white bait season's on. But I was over there. My wife and I actually went over to New Zealand last year. I didn't go hunting. I was on a parliamentary study tour, actually, believe it or not. And I was doing an assignment, or my study, my research was on um, uh, increasing use of public lands for recreational purposes. So whether that be hunting or mountain bike riding, or you know hiking or tramping as they call it over there or things like that and that sort of resonates with my community here too because we've been trying to open up some public lands for for some of those activities um, in and around Orange uh, Mount Knoblis we're trying to get mountain biking going and a few other things but so New Zealand is you know one of the one of the you know best easiest sort of um, most accessible public land systems in the world to do all those types of things so um, that was that was what we, you know, went over there for, and, and I spent some time at Parliament at Wellington and spoke to MPs and all sorts of things and also met with the New Zealand Deer Store Production. That's where I got this shirt. Although I don't know if I got it. They gave me, and I met with um, the CEO of the New Zealand Deer Stalkers and they've got a pretty cool, they're in Wellington, they've got a pretty cool trophy room. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to, get, to go over and visit there, yeah. but it's worth a visit. I mean, they, they happily show you around and show you their trophy room. They've got some of the oldest heads you know, shot back in the day in New Zealand, reds, tar, chamois, whitetail, seeker, um, sandbar, rusar, they've got all the species, what you know, that have been, that are over there. But obviously, you know, moose as well, they've got a, they've got a moose there from, I think it was one of uh, Eddie Merrick's or um, heads that he shot. But, uh, and it's like a museum, really, like a, a deer stalkers museum of New Zealand. So if you get a chance, if you're over in Wellington, look them up and go and see the guys at um, the New Zealand deer stalkers head office there in Wellington and, you know, have a look at their museum because it's really interesting. But but to your point, yeah, look, it's uh, we went down to Haast as part of the and as part of my research and then we went to Jackson's Bay, which is further south from Haast, about 30 or 40 k's, and it's a beautiful little spot just above Fiordland, actually, and um, and before the Fiordland National Park, and it's a, a little fishing village. And um, they've got a little – it's a, a train carriage. It's called the Craypot. Um, Dodge, you like your food and, and all that. This is a good spot to go. It's only open six months of the year during the, the spring sort of summer months. And um, you get great seafood, local seafood that's caught locally, great you know fish and chips, all that sort of stuff, coffee. You can get alcohol, beers, wine, you name it. And then there's a, a lobster depot. Field, it's called, I think it was Fieldland Lobster Depot, which was just next door and, there was a few guys who'd just come back diving. We were tinny just around the point, you know, a couple of hundred metres away, and they came back and they, they had a couple of big blue eskies, you know, and I had a look, and I said, well, you got some crazy, and I go, yeah, yeah, we've just been out for a point, you know. And they, and they had probably 50 or 60 craze that they'd collected, and they were going to market somewhere, you know, and they're good-sized craze, you know. Like, <laughs> um, I thought, this is a spot, you know. <laughs> 
this is the spot. If, if you want to die somewhere, this is where yeah, it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you like your hunting and fishing, um, diving, all that sort of stuff, past and that, you know, Jackson's Bay, and it's, and it's very sort of bit of an area of New Zealand at times forgotten, you know, sort of hasn't been over-commercialised. But the Hard Antler Inn, that's a good pub. Dodge, I've been there many times and had a few few meals and drinks there. It's good. So over here, where, you know, yeah. like you, you mentioned before, you go after trophies. What do you got there? What are what are a couple of your good ones that you've knocked off? I've shot some some reasonably good fallow deer around both sort of Goulburn Way, but also up at Ballandine up near Stanthorpe. Uh, shot a nice Rusa, you know, probably one eighty, one eighty four, one eighty five free range Rusa from down the south coast. That was, Gordon Orford actually scored that for me when he was alive. Got a nice tar that I've shot uh, in New Zealand, probably a 12 and a half inch free range, you know, um, tar that shot with my, the mates, unguided pretty much, you know, we just sort of, on one of our trips into the Dobson. Uh, shot a couple of sand, but haven't shot any big stags yet, but uh, shot a couple, but um, the young fella shot a nice stag, probably a 20, 22 incher, you know, nice, a big bodied animal. And that was a pretty cool hunt. We were hunting some farm fringe country not far from uh, Myrtleford uh, on private property that we had permission to hunt on. And um, we were, I'd shot a hind the day before <clears throat> for meat. And then um, it was my son's first samba hunt. And um, so we were hunting together and we just had the one gun, I think, from memory. Anyway, um, the following the following day, we were sort of sneaking up this, and we came across a few fresh scrapes and rubs and sort of sneaking up. You know, it's looking promising. A fair bit of fresh sign around. And he was in front. He had his, um, I bought him for his birthday, a Browning X-Bolt uh, 308. It's a Hell's Canyon speed. Really nice gun, actually. And anyway, so he he was in front of me and I was behind him, which sort of sneaking along pretty quietly. I see this, well, actually, he stops and he's got the gun up against a tree and he turns to me and goes, there's a stag. Whispers to me. And I had my binos up and I could see this, stag walking towards us and it was just sort of slowly just meandering along and rubbing his antlers sort of every now and then on a bit of brush you know and i said and there was a bit of clearing that it was coming towards us which and it was only pretty close but it was coming towards us walking up uphill towards us and i said whispered to him i said just wait till it gets to the clearing there was a bit of clearing about 20 meters in front of us Anyway, so it took a few minutes for this for this animal to get out onto this clearing, and I thought, oh, <laughs> he's going to have a bit of buck fever, or you know, because he's, he's had the gun up against the tree for for probably two or three minutes watching this thing for his scope, and then it gets. And I said, shoot it in the neck, you know, because he had the three hundred eight shooting. Um, oh, he had some hundred and fifty grain factory ammo. It was I think Remington Core locks or something, and big animal. Uh, and I said, shoot it in the neck, you know, that close. And uh, so he did, the thing come out, next thing I'm watching through the binos, boom, shoots it, it drops straight away, it hit the ground straight away and went back to its feet, bolted down the hill, and then it hit this, it must have hit a massive log that was across, you know, it was probably, the log was probably three foot high, would have been a death run, I suppose, hit this massive log, and the thing just went cartwheeling through the air, and never, never forget it, the, the, the side of this massive stag, this body just like, two cartwheels and it sort of went downhill and the sound of it like a you know they sound like a like an XBT going through the bush when they're 
and 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 he couldn't believe it. Like it was like he was shaking, and and we we went down and we found it was dead. It was wedged against a tree, and it was his first stag and his first stamper actually, and it really got him hooked. As well. How cool was that? You know, that was like you know, pretty nerve wracking experience, and to do it, you know, in that really thick stuff up close, and it was a pretty exciting hunt. So. Yeah, that wasn't a bad stag. It was about twenty twenty two inch stag, but um, especially for your first one, it's a bit of a spoiled situation. Then first one is how, how do you I know, I know. rate that as a father in your hunting adventures? Being able to share that with him, yeah, good. I love it. I love it. You know, and I get yeah, and I get more enjoyment not even shooting, like letting them shoot, and getting and seeing the joy it brings to you know the the, the kids, or even when I take people that haven't been hunting or haven't done a lot of hunting or haven't experienced that new hunters for example you know the, the excitement that they get from shooting their first deer or pig or goat or you know fox that's like I, I think that's great you know i get i get so much joy out of seeing them be, get so much joy out of it you know so i think that's pretty cool yeah and that was a great experience i mean that's something that we'll probably we'll both remember for the rest of our lives you know um that particular hunt and and he's now he's now nineteen. He still does a fair bit of hunting, and we still go away together when we can. So hopefully we can. Um, I want to take him to uh, on a wilderness hunt, you know, New Zealand tar or chamois hunt or something like that. I think that would be really cool. He hasn't done that yet, so yeah. But no, look, I think it's one of the great experiences taking your kids out into the bush and experiencing that sort of stuff. And it doesn't always happen like that, but you have got to get out there and do it. You know, you can't do it from your yeah. room. So you just got to get out, out there and do it and experience it, and and uh, eventually it comes off. And you know, it's 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 a great bonding experience. You know, like I think it's a really important. I look back to my childhood. You know, that hunting really sort of I think allowed me that opportunity to bond with my dad and with my uncles. And it was I think a lot of kids are missing that these days. You know, especially boys, right, with their fathers or with a male a male role model in their lives. Like some some kids don't unfortunately don't have it that in their lives you know through circumstances beyond their control so i you know i think it's um that and it's a pretty traditional cultural thing i think you know like if you look at indigenous communities around the world you know the men went out hunting and with their dads and uncles and cousins and all that sort of stuff and I think there was more to do than just the hunting side of it it was also about spending time and, and learning and being mentored as well you know, which I think is something I think we really need to um, perhaps promote a lot more because, you know, like it's it's not all just about pulling a trigger on animal. Um, it's about sharing those experiences with your kids and, um, you know, establishing those relationships with your kids and, and those moments and that those memories, you know, and something that they'll take away and remember for the rest of their lives. I think something I missed out on was, and Matt and I are both first-generation hunters, We've spoken yeah. about it before and I was only sort of uh, dwelling on this today. I was talking to my offsider about it because he asked about how I got into it and I, I came from nowhere. Yeah. It's My yeah. dad was in the army. A gun to him was like me owning a hammer. He just It was a yeah. job and he hated it because he had to clean it all the yeah. time. So there's yeah. no enjoyment yeah, yeah, out of yeah. it. But uh, I look forward to yeah. you know, I've already taken my daughter, she's four. She's been on a couple of trips with us. The son, he's only one. He just sort of went out with us the other day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to sharing that. Yeah. Oh, no, they're great times. And that's and that's one of the reasons I, you know, I ran for parliament, right, because I could see how things were going. And, and this was goes back to, like, with the Greyhound, right? I, I 
when the government announced they'll be in greyhound racing, I thought, look, I, I don't race greyhounds, right? But it, it's no different to if there was to be a, a shooting and they turn around and go, well, we've got to ban guns, right? It was sort of the same sort of thing. You can't just do that. You know, you can't punish a whole sector of, of law-abiding, decent, honest people on the sake of, or off the back of someone doing, you know, a, a very um, minority amount of people doing the wrong thing. So that's that's the comparison I drew to it. And that's what I thought, I'm going to run for parliament and see if I can get elected because I think this is bullshit, right? You don't just ban an industry just because of something bad happening or someone's done something wrong and destroy a livelihood for a whole lot of people who aren't doing the wrong thing. Because I, I extrapolated it like it'd be no different to firearms owners. And it, and it wasn't. It wasn't. So that was one of the reasons, you know, I, I ran because I thought, I want to see, you know, I'd love to one day take my grandkids hunting. You know, I reckon that'd be cool to have share those experiences, you know, and, and you know, I've taken, I've got five sons and they're all sort of grown up now that the eldest two are twins, they're 25 and then there's 24 and then there's 22 and then there's 19. But, you know, they've all over their childhoods been away with me and, and, and Sean, my youngest boy, he's particularly keen. Like he'd go hunting every weekend if, if I could, you know. I just feel bad that I can't because I'm just too, too busy with my work at the moment. But that's, you know, often the case. It's a little bit like that, that Cat Stevens song, you know, Cats in the Cradle. I feel a bit bad, you know. Like, But I don't know. Like, you've got to put food on the table and pay the bills too. So it's sort of – but, yeah, I, I've got to make more time, for, for especially for him because he's really keen to go out and, you know, he's working now. So it probably won't be too far. And, you know, maybe he might not want to come out with his dad anymore. You know, he'll want to – chase girls and do things with his mates probably more than go hunting with his dad on the weekend. Well, if he's free this weekend, I think Matt's busy, so I might take him out. <laughs> Wouldn't it shock me? Well, he's just he, he's just done his ACL at rugby training, unfortunately, Ooh. so he's a bit... bit tender. He's a bit, yeah, not happy, but... Um, no, they're no good. I've had two of them. They're... Uh, oh, yeah, look, as long as you rehab them, all right, you'll, uh, you'll be back out there, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's only just done the injury, like, last week. And he's a, he's a third year now apprentice carpenter so he's he's working still but you know his boss wasn't real happy about it understandably you know as well but i don't know whether he needs surgery yet we'll have to wait and see what the what the surgeon says obviously we can repair it without surgery whether it's rehab and rest and building up muscle and yeah but it's going to slow him down a little bit on the hunting side of things for a little while which is a shame but um he's still young and you know he'll get over it pretty quickly let's take a break and we'll be right back Everyone knows hunters need good glass, and with the Zeiss SFLs or Smart Focus Lightweight Binoculars, your hunting time will be enhanced with this great bit of kit. Optimised to be as lightweight and compact as possible, the Zeiss SFL binoculars are a great addition to the SF family. The new ultra-high-definition concept ensures true-to-life colour reproduction and the highest level of detail. Thanks to its Smart Focus concept, the focus wheel is perfectly positioned, enabling fast and precise focusing, even with gloves on. Find your local Zeiss stockist at www.osaustralia.com.au. And we're back. And twins, mate. I'm, a, uh, I'm dealing with. I'm yeah. dealing with mine. Hit seven months. Oh wow! Yeah. So what do you got? What, what's what do you got? Two boys. No, nah, boy and a girl. One so one of each, which okay. uh, was quite nice because yeah. I've got the my uh, my oldest is a two and a half year old boy. So. Ah, uh, okay. So you got, got three. three. Yeah, three under three. So when yeah. you were saying you had them close oh, together, right. I uh, I was sitting there going, yeah. "Yep, I uh, know where you're coming from." Not as many, but um, geez, yeah. there uh, yeah, there's a lot. We're outnumbered, and that uh, that's tricky when you're outnumbered. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get away when the kid when they're that age. Like I didn't do a lot of hunting there 
probably until they started school because it was just hard on the wife. You know, she'd be home pulling her hair out with the, you know, trying to get these, keep these kids under control and I was out sort of hunting or doing something. So, yeah, but, and, and you know, it was, it was always pretty tough then, but, you know, I always think of it. Someone once said to me, my auntie actually, she said to me, and she had six kids, and she said, when they're little, their problems are little. When they get bigger, their problems get bigger. And it's so true. <laughs> they always, there's always a problem. Just a different age. You know. But no, good. They're, they're, they're great to have, and, you know, it's great to get out in the outdoors with them. Yeah, most definitely. Can I head into the greyhound side of things and the head into the political yep. aspect of the conversation? Mm. What Do you feel that worked and your role was like you achieved what you wanted to achieve and that obviously – Played a big yeah. part in your future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, saved the industry from being destroyed, um, being shut down, uh, and now the ban was overturned because it was political suicide, especially by the National Party. They saw that, so they overturned it, and now Greyhound Racing is thriving. You know, they've reformed it, mm-hmm. they've cleaned it up, they're getting a fairer share of the revenue from the tab, um, which is good. So they're able to offer more prize money, which has made it more professional as well. They've weeded out, they've got the Integrity Commission, they've weeded out a lot of the, the dodgy uh, operators that were operating. So now the guys that are operating are, are doing it ethically, correctly, lawfully, and you know with the highest animal welfare um, codes and care and um, possible. So yeah, look, I think um, it's ironic actually because now the government, um, the Greyhound Breeders and Owners and Trainers Association are looking at spending $15 million on a regional centre of excellence and they're looking at potentially Orange being the location of that centre, that track and facility, which would be terrific. And I was at a candidate's forum only last night and we were talking about it uh, and I said, wouldn't it be ironic that the election that basically saved back in 2016 that saved the Greyhound racing or saved the industry from being wiped out and decimated and shut down now, six or seven years later, is able to have the first regional centre of excellence, which would be a pretty good reward for the local community here. And we've got some of the best greyhound trainers and breeders in the world, and certainly in Australia, in Orange, in and around Orange in the Central West. You know, three of the three of the dogs that raced in the recent um, million dollar race at Wentworth Park were from Orange. So three of the seven, so nearly half the field. And the dog that still holds the lap record, the fastest lap or the quickest time for Wentworth Park, Shaky Jakey, which was set back in 2014 or something, was from Orange. And to this day, he still holds the lap record for right. Wentworth Park. It's a fast so dog. Pretty amazing. So just, yeah. Well, the guy uh, I know who, who, who owned her and trained and bred her, or him, I should say, the dog for the male, um, it raced one race, one, set the fastest lap record. He got offered a million dollars for it then and there on the night. He declined it and went straight to stud. And uh, that dog has passed away now, but he's got a lot of semen and straws that he kept from it. And it's made him a lot mm-hmm. of money uh, in breeding, you know, genetics. Um, so that's just an orange, right? So so it was a really strong greyhound racing community in orange. And, and, all, and that was one of the reasons why I suppose I was successful. And, and they've... The Greyhound people, certainly, you know, the participants, the industry are so thankful. Even now, for this election now, seven years later, they're still coming and helping, handing out for me, you know, because they know the important role that I played in saving their industry. So I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of that, even though I'm not a Greyhound trainer, breeder or or, or punter. I can see this sign above the new stadium 
And down, down here we've got the Dapto dogs. Do you think we're ever going to get the Donato dogs? <laughs> well, I have had two dogs. <laughs> there was there was a, a local breeder who who's he's pretty he's actually a very good breeder. Um, he calls all his dogs zipping, and then so they all the first is zipping, and then so he had two dogs that raced at Wentworth Park, zipping Phil and zipping Donato. How'd they go? <laughs> I got a photo with both of them. Um, I think uh, one went all right. One, I think, might have even won a couple of races, um, and the other one didn't do so well. I think it might have got injured. And it, it retired. But, um, yeah. That's cool. But, uh, yeah, that was quite funny. Yeah. Zipping feel. Yeah, I think the Donato dog just got a ring to it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> so what, what's happened after the Greyhounds? What's been... Some major things happening in Orange and in the state. Yeah, um, well, obviously my focus was on regional, you know, Orange, but regional New South Wales. So we had a drought after I was elected, so fought for and, and was able to twist the government's arm to deliver freight subsidies for drought-affected farmers to buy hay and whatnot from Victoria. So that was essentially $300 million package for farmers that I was in a national party. The government didn't want to talk about drought. They didn't want to talk about it and wanted it to go away, you know, please let it rain, let it rain, you know. And then there was also another, one of the other things that I was able to um, get some serious funding for, um, especially for farmers, was the um, uh, registration on their primary production vehicles, concessional registration. They were being, uh, over a course of about 20-odd years, um, farmers were being overcharged on their registration for these vehicles due to a, there was an algorithm issue with the software that the RMS were using and it was going to cost a couple of million bucks to fix it and they would have had to have alerted the public and told them. So over a 20-odd year period that this was going on for, farmers had paid you know thousands and thousands of dollars more than what they should have paid for registration. And both the Labor government at the time and then the successive Liberal National government, they, they all knew about it, but they weren't prepared to own up to it or bring it to the attention of, the customers and the public, because I knew it was would have brought rise to, um, you know, calls for um, recompense and 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 um, compensation. So uh, I became aware of this. I exposed it in Parliament uh, in Question Time. I asked the minister a question about it in Question Time. Um, got on the Ray Hadley about it, and anyway, we were able to get the government to basically roll out a hundred and fifteen million dollar package. To, and I know farmers who have trucks and some of them got, you know, refunds of 30-odd thousand dollars, right? That's how much they'd been overcharged for, for 20-odd huge. years. So d- during a drought especially, yeah. right? It's a full semi-load of hay. Yeah, so that was, that was something else. But um, fighting for regional communities, um, ensuring we get our fair share, certainly in Orange, you know, health is a big issue. Palliative care is a big issue. Fought for and got dedicated palliative care beds at our hospital better public transport, better roads. I called the government out on the pothole situation recently with the potholes with all the wet weather uh, on our roads and they announced a $500 million statewide package to fix potholes. So my, my role as an independent, I suppose, is you know I'm not in government. I can't get money. I don't have access to the treasurer, but I can, I can highlight issues. I can bring them to the attention of government. I can call them out. I can embarrass them and twist their arm into doing something, and that's been pretty successful. Uh, over the last six or seven years on a variety of issues. 
um, probably delivered close to a billion dollars or more than a billion dollars into regional New South Wales over things that I've been advocating for. When you look at the total sum of the the drought, you know, financial relief for drought subsidies, the registration rip-offs, the 500-odd million for pothole repairs and other packages as well that we were able to get delivered for drought-affected communities during the drought, um, you know, cessation of LLS rates, for example, and uh, things like that. We were able to get a, a lot of money um, you know, back into the bush. And we're now seeing, um, you know, communities like Orange are really thriving, like businesses are going gangbusters. Um, we are lucky we have a diversified economy in Orange. We've got the mine, we've got a terrific health system. Uh, we were quite lucky in Orange. We've got, you know, 100 and nearly 200 odd doctors in Orange, GPs and medical specialists and other medical professionals. So, you know, they then support support a lot of local businesses. Um, so, yeah, look, businesses, the business community and the economic side of the town is really humming along, which is good. How does it go in question time when you pop those questions that people know about and you've only just found about and you want to ask about it? Is it like, is that on the whistleblower side of things? Like people are a bit annoyed and frustrated with that or? Oh, no. So we get allocated questions because each question time there's only, um, well, they've just increased it. It used to be 10 questions per question time. But I think now the last year or so, we've got to change to 15. So the government would have Dorothy Dixon's where they ask themselves questions to promote themselves. That They get half the questions and then the opposition get, you know, the bulk of the remaining questions and then the crossbench would get one or two questions per sitting day. So we would have a roster. So you get to ask a question probably once every three weeks in Parliament of a minister or the Premier. Um, I, I try and uh, it's a good opportunity to raise whatever the most pressing issue in your community is because obviously that's, that's um, where most of the media focus is on the day, is on question time. It's a good opportunity to try and embarrass the government over a specific issue or, or try and really wedge them on an issue, you know. Um, so you put a lot of thought into well, I do anyway. Um, you put a lot of thought into the question you got to ask. Sometimes you might let the other side, you know, the person know, the minister know, or the premier know, if depending on what the question is. Um, but other times you won't tell them. Strategically, you just sort of depends on the question and the response that you want. So you know, obviously, the strategy of it, the tactics of it, sort of plays out a little bit too, but. Um, you want to get the best outcome for your community and to highlight the issue. So um, sometimes it's beneficial to to give them notice, um, but other times it's best just to ambush them as well. So <laughs> that's the strategy behind a lot of questions in question time. But you don't get to ask a question every single day, not in question time. Um, you can submit written questions on notice, but it's not the same as as a, you know being able to stand up in parliament ask a question of a premier or the minister of a certain portfolio and, um, you know, but rarely do you get a decent answer. I mean, you know, you, you ask you ask a question and you'll rarely get an answer to the question. Often I'll just rabble on, especially if it's a difficult question or one that they can't really answer. Um, and as someone said to me early on in the piece, it's called question time, not answer time, right? <laughs> so don't expect answers, right? <laughs> so... You know, the speaker is one of the members of the government, so he's like the, you know, the, he, he or she is the independent, so-called independent umpire, but they are always got a bias towards the government. Uh, so, you know, you try and 
you might try and pull up a minister or the premier are not responding or not answering the question on relevance, for example, if they're waffling on with something else. But um, the speaker will often side with the government and say, oh, no, they're being relevant. So <laughs> it's not a level playing field. There's no such thing as fairness in politics. I'll tell you now, people who think it's fair, it's you're wrong. It's unfair. It's completely skewed. It's unbiased. Sorry, it's biased. <laughs> not unbiased. Completely biased. It's completely set up to favour the government of the day. And I suppose that's the way it's always been. They've got the numbers they control how the um, how the house operates. It's interesting with the two party system, and it's mm. sort of structured in such a way that it will never change. Mm. And I can see the challenges for someone like yourself wanting to raise awareness or get answers. Mm. And if it's not suited getting it out there. So, and I guess we're seeing that on a bit of the landscape at the moment with what's going yeah. on with the duck season down in Victoria mm. and, mm. Um, you know, bow hunting in South Australia and mm. the calibre bands in Western Australia. Mm. What do you, being a New South Wales sort of focus, what do you think's happening? What are we going to face? Is there anything that you sort of have heard or sitting there going, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to go? Yeah, look, it's concerning hearing about those um legislative changes in WA and South Australia especially. That's obviously on the back of a, a Labor government as well. Uh, I think in New South Wales, um, we've certainly been holding the tide back because we've had you know members of the Shooters, Fishers, Farmers Party in the parliament um, as well. But, you know, in Victoria with the duck ban, it's, you know, it's and they've got a strong hunting culture down there as well. But yeah, look, I think it's really important to have members of parliament who have an appreciation of an experience of hunting because of the way that the parliament's structured and on proportional representation means that, you know, the bush has less seats in the city and that's just a factual reality. Um, there's nothing we can do to change that. So that means that, you know, people in the city have, you know, probably a bigger voice than people in the bush and country because there's more members of parliament from the metropolitan areas than there are in the bush. So it's really important that, um, and a lot of city MPs probably don't like hunting or have never been hunting or uh, opposed to hunting. There's not too many of them. I'm just trying to think now of the lower house members that I deal, that I know. There wouldn't be many that held firearms licenses, probably only a, a handful. So a lot of them don't really have an appreciation or understanding or have experience in, in that regard. And they've got to tow the lines of the major parties, right? So that's the big issue. And both the Liberal Nationals and, and the Labor Party are not really firearm friendly or supportive. I mean, we're just holding back the tide, really, in New South Wales. I, that's that's my personal belief. And I wish that was wrong. But that's, that's, that's the reality that I feel that we're in at the moment. So it's good that, you know, we've had representation um, from the likes of Roy Butler and myself and and the two shooters in the upper house that's sort of been able to be effective in holding the government to account. And look, because I'm now an independent, I'll still always stand for, you know, law abiding firearms ownership and hunting and all that. That doesn't change. I just couldn't do it under the banner of the party anymore due to other reasons. But, you know, my, my representation um, for those groups doesn't change. It's important that we, you know, and it's interesting now that One Nation has come out with a, with a, a hunting sort of firearm platform as well, which is good which is good because they could hold the balance of power in the upper house after the election next um, in the next few weeks. Yeah, that was a good one. We had Mark on the other day and having a chat mm. about that and um, 
one of the things, their big push, which I liked as well, not just from the shooting perspective, and you touched on it um, just mm. previously, is opening up like the national parks yeah. and having it for camping, four driving and things yeah. like that. And it, it just makes sense. I think he was yeah. quoting 13% are landlocked or, or something like yeah. that that you can't do anything with. Yeah. And it has never been something that I could understand, Is especially yeah. with mental health, with everything going on, we should be encouraging people to get out and yeah. camp and do the things away from the screens and, yeah. you know, the high-pressure jobs and things like that. So it's yeah. uh, I think it's an election, even if you're not into politics, I think this election is going to be a big one for hunters and mm. shooters. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. interested to see what happens because whether One Nation do pick up a bit more of the shooters' votes because of what's happened with yeah. the, the SFFP or that – they still, or it's split, and then less people get in that are a firearm sort of friendly, and and then that's yeah. that would be a disaster in my opinion. But yeah, uh, it would be. Well, you've got you know you've got the likes of the Greens and Animal Justice Party, who are chomping at the bit to come down hard on and and basically ban firearms ownership and hunting and all that, right? And and the unfortunate reality is that there's now people in the Liberal Party, National Party, Labor Party who probably should be in the Greens Party, right? That's that's how that's how left their politics is, but they use the major parties as a vehicle to get them elected. Because, it's, but the reality is, they really deserve to be in the Greens. They're that far left wing, you know. But they're now they've infiltrated these other major parties, which is which is real concerning. Yeah, hundred percent. So what? Um, so your seat? I heard on the radio today. Actually, sorry, I, no. My wife told me she said the seat of orange is one oh, yeah. that people are wanting to really fight for, I guess, to take yeah. it off you. Yeah. Um, how is the campaign going? And Yeah, yeah. It's, are you happy? Yeah, it's going pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I'm happy how it's going so far, touch wood. Yeah, no, it's going pretty good. I mean, obviously, uh, running as an independent it has its challenges. You know, you don't have the support of a party behind you to A, fund it, B, resource it, C, organise it. So, you know, that's something new that, I'm doing and, you know, my wife's looking after, you know, organising the volunteers. So we've got a couple of hundred volunteers that have come forward to help out on election day and pre-poll and you need that. You need, you know, you, you need about 200 people to volunteer their time. So that's, you know, a lot of people, right? And then it, there's the financial cost. I'm not receiving or taking any donations. I'm completely self-funding it myself. So, you know, that's a fairly big uh, contribution as well that you make to do that, to buy media, to buy call flutes, to buy T-shirts to to put on different events and functions and all that sort of stuff. So it's a costly exercise uh, running elections or running for election as well. Can we ask how much? Yeah, well, it's probably uh, over $60,000. It's a fair investment in your future, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it, and it's um, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no certainty really. Well, right? <laughs> there's probably no payback either. No, well, the electoral roll, no, no, you do get, if you poll over 4%, you get what you paid and you, you lodge your paperwork with the electoral commission, they will refund you what you've paid okay. out. So what you've expent, you'll okay. get that back. But you've got to get over 4% of the primary vote. Which, what did you, know, what did you get last time? I'll do that. 49.1%. Okay, so it's going to be a fair swing. Yeah, yeah to, to not get the 4%. <laughs> yeah. If I get four percent, I'll be, you know. <laughs> pretty devastated. I'll be pretty yeah. devastated. And broke. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. No, nah, just joking. But yeah, so you know, like it's they're not they're not cheap exercises um, to run, 
But, you know, like in saying that, you know, when you're in the party, the party looks after all that side of it. Are you not allowed to take donations or are you just choosing not to? No, no, you can. I'm just okay. choosing not to. Look, at the end of the day, my view is nobody gives you a donation at some point not wanting to call in a right. favour, right? <laughs> just keeps the transparency. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I don't really like the donation, political donation system, yep. to be honest. I think it's basically a legalised form of corruption, really, you know people putting money, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars toward parties at some point they're going to want to call a favour in, you know. They don't do it out of the goodness of their heart, <laughs> you know. Well, even if they don't, if you're sitting there going, well, that person donated X amount and if I'm yeah. not sort of a little bit biased in some of what I put yeah. forward, well, they're not going to then back me in the future yeah. and where does that money come from for the campaign? So, right. yeah, I'm with you there. I think yeah, it is like a legalised form of corruption. Yeah. So, or influence at least. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, so that's, um, you know, organising all that is, is taking up a lot of time and effort and work and we've had to start from scratch because I've never had to do this before. It's always, you know, so it's, um, yeah, we've learned a lot. But no, it's all going pretty well, I think. But, yeah, look, Orange is obviously a critical seat. The government would love to win it back. They would love to win it back. The Nationals would love to win it back. They, they still can't get over the fact that mm. they lost it, you know. It's like, how dare you? Who's this guy who's come from nowhere and taken, you know, a seat that we've had since World War Two? you know? <laughs> and it's, and they still haven't got over it. And and who are the people running against you? Is there an SFFP? Can yeah, 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 yeah. So there, there is, there is. I don't know him actually. Um, I might have, I don't know if I've met him before. I, I have met him once, but I think I may have met him on the, no, I don't think I have yet in it. So, yeah, that was probably a bit of a vindictive sort of um, thing from the party. You know, Borzak said to me when, when I left the party, well, we'll have to run against you if you leave. And I said, well, that's okay. You do go your hardest, mate. I don't particularly mm. care what you do, you know. <laughs> so there's a few choice words there as you could appreciate. But, um, yeah, look, I think National Party, Labor Party, Greens, um, Cannabis Party, although I haven't seen who their candidate is yet, and Sustainable Australia Party. They're the six so far, and myself, obviously. There's, there's six of us registered. But nominations close on the 7th of March, 8th of March or something, so next week. So you, you've got to be nominated by that day. So we'll know definitely by then. So, But, look, it's 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 going to be, you know, either me or the National Party that wins it realistically. Like Labor hasn't won the seat for probably 100 years. Um, it's not really a Labor seat. It's, it's more a conservative-style seat. So... The National Party is, is the main competition. What's Roy up against in Bowen? Same. Yep. I don't know if, if the SFF have nominated anyone to run against him, but there's certainly a National Party candidate and Labor, and I'm not sure of any other candidates at this stage. I haven't spoken to Roy for about a week, but yeah, he'd be he'd be in the same. Did you work with Roy Pryor in the police side of things? No, no, because he was um, he was based at Dubbo. He was sort of looking after HR of the civilian um, unsworn mm-hmm. members. So, no, I didn't. I didn't, actually didn't know Roy in, when he was working with the, in the police force. No. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been on a fox drive. I know Roy half well, and uh, we went on a fox drive together down in yeah. Violet Town. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good, good fun trip. And, he's a good man. Uh, he is a great, great fella. Yeah, he's a good fella, Roy. He uh, loaned me a, a 50 cal... Um, yeah, black powder rifle, at, uh, and You've got a he does have some fun stuff. And I took that away and 
um, made some poor decisions and didn't put enough powder in at one point and then got the projectile stuck halfway down and had to get that out and uh, just black powder problems. But yeah. no, it was good. I actually shot a deer with it. It was pretty exciting. It's uh, Oh, wow. Pretty cool. And also just fun to shoot at night because it throws a eight-foot flame, flame yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, like fireworks, yeah. Yeah, no, Roy's a good, he's a good man. He's a um, very generous fella and, uh, you know, he's a real he's a real gentleman. I'll give him that. You know, he's, he's probably too nice for politics. <laughs> but he, he is really, a really nice guy. He's a really nice guy. He never sp- speaks ill of anyone. Um, he's always very polite and courteous and proper and friendly and, you know, generous. He's always trying to feed and feed people that come into his office. Can I get you a drink? Can I get you a coffee? Can I get you something to eat? You know, <laughs> he's such a great host. <laughs> no, he's a terrific guy. So hopefully hopefully he gets re-elected, yeah. It'll be a pork, uh, what is he, a Vietnamese tofu roll? It's his favourite or something? He doesn't, he doesn't eat meat? Oh, something like that. Vegetarian or no, vegan? He, yeah, yeah, plant-based, I think he calls it. Plant. I like calling him a vegan, but he doesn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Is the only sort of plant, plant based. Is a is a plant based eater that shoots. Is a contract shooter and shoots. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting concept. And, and, and grows beef. Yes, and, and has cattle. Yeah, and, because he's realistic. <laughs> he understands the world. Yeah, yeah, he's a bit eccentric. I'll give him that. He is a bit eccentric, but uh, no, he's a good man. Good. Yeah, he's a good man. So what um, what would be your prediction, or not even a prediction, I suppose? What would be the best case scenario for mm. the election for shooters and hunters? Uh, probably a hung parliament. We've, um, you know, probably, well, look, I, I think it's going to be a hung parliament either way, certainly in terms of the lower house, which is where government's formed. I just can't see Labor winning 11 seats outright. They could win four or five, but I just can't see them winning 11. I could be wrong, right? I could be misreading it, but everyone I'm talking to is, is of the, a lot of the people who follow it closely. They're all the same view in the polling and all that sort of stuff. So, um, look, I think traditionally, you know, a conservative government would be better um, for shooters. But, you know, in the last term of this current government, you know, we've seen the ammo bill that was introduced. We've seen the appearance law legislation introduced. And this is from a conservative government, right? We've seen the firearms registry, um, you know, uh, overzealous firearms registry and, and poor customer service and delays, continual delays, unexplained delays and, and you know, from the registry and the police minister who, this current police minister who, you know, won't hold the registry to account and thinks it's okay to just screw over shooters and firearms owners, you know. So, yeah, look, it's, um, I think, a hung parliament. And if, you know, Roy and myself are re-elected and if, you know, you see Borzak get re-elected and you see One Nation pick up a couple of seats with their platform that they're now going in with, you know, that, that should hopefully um, potentially allow some negotiation because they'll need the cross the government of the day will need to negotiate with crossbench the concern is if you get a a government that has majority and they can just ram through legislation especially if it's well it doesn't matter who it is really i don't think it really matters if it's labor or liberal nets are not too different these days right yep so if you've got a, a government that has the majority they can ram through legislation without you know whatever they want whatever their agenda is so I think a minority government would probably be the best outcome for for, for shooters and hunters, firearms owners. And then have uh, a few people to, to block the way, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, let's hope because it's uh, – yeah, I, mm. I, I love what we do and the hobby and 
I do, as you sort of said, it'd be how cool it would be to have grandkids that do it. And, and whilst mm. I've only got very young ones, you know, that would be a dream, I think. And I mm. think we, uh, as shooters and the, the hunting and shooting community, really needs to get behind it. And yeah. whether you like politics or not, this is a big one and we need to make sure that our voices are heard. And, you know, Field and Game Australia have really started to, to push back and get the unions on board as well with the, what's yeah. happening with the ducks. And I think that's something that, Australians need to to really look at if if you like your hobby uh, and yeah. you love what we do, which I do, you got to take note of these things and and take it seriously. That's right. I think traditionally firearms owners have been pretty complacent, right? We've probably been our own worst enemy to some extent. You know, it's just like oh, you know, we've just been doing it forever and it's not going to change and this and that. But you know, things can change quickly. You only need to see, it, you know. I'm probably guilty of that a little bit myself, coming from a like a post '96. Yeah kind of entrance into the industry. Yep. I didn't know what it was before. I'm I'm a little bit on the someone else might do that for me kind of thing. And yeah. it it's yeah, it's not until this last sort of four or five years when I've really taken a vested interest in the sport to the point where you're noticing yeah. that these things are starting to get chip away. Matt's always pointing out like everything's at you know, they're just chipping away at it, little chips. And yeah. if they can't the the WA thing, do you know much about the background of why that happened on the W8? No, I don't. Okay. Basically, there was a long-range shooting range that was going to get shut down. They raised a whole heap of money, the say GoFundMe-style system from the shooters, and they went ahead. They won in the courts against the WA police. Yeah. So then WA police have said, right, you can have your range. We'll just ban the rifles you shoot there. And, you know, it yeah. seems to be the system. They just If they can't win on this, they'll come at a different angle. Yeah, when you're up against the the machine of government, right, <laughs> and the resources that government it's has, endless. you know, you might you might win the battle, but you don't mm. win the war, right? It's it's you know, it's like okay, well, you might have won this one, but we'll screw you over this way. Yeah, I think that's what we've got to be like careful with the, ammo, with the ammo bill. That's it's and it's just also legislation that's being enforced by regulation, so it doesn't even need to go through the parliament. So regulations, and that's what the government has been doing a lot of in the last sort of 12 months when they've been in minority is they passing regulations, which is basically at the discretion of the minister to, to enact laws. Now those usually for, for regulations, they're, you know, they're, they're offenses that don't carry imprisonment, right? As a potential penalty, they might be fine only offenses, but, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's, it's, it's another way, a sneaky way that the government does it to avoid the scrutiny of putting it through parliament and having it debated and potentially losing it, they can be sneaky and just enforced by regulation. And that's basically just the discretion of the minister. So you've got to be conscious of that too. Yeah, there's a lot to it and uh, I don't think I'll ever get my head around everything. So, but uh, look, uh, Phil, really appreciate you coming on tonight. Have you got any messages for the people of Orange? Get out and support you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come out and support. Um, you know, looking for volunteers, still looking for volunteers to help hand out come election day, you know, uh, or in pre-poll in the week leading up to the election. And it's really important, um, you know, shooters, hunters, uh, outdoors people, uh, this is an opportunity to really uh, have your voice heard. You want members of parliament who have an understanding and appreciation and experience in these particular issues. There's not too many of us, to be quite frank. There's not too many of us. I don't even know if Mark Latham has a firearms license. I don't know if you asked him that question. Yeah, I did. But, he doesn't. Uh, he might get into yeah. it when he uh, retires. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there's not, there's not too many of us that have a license to understand what 
firearms owners are going through. So we've got to really ensure that we keep a presence in the parliament, both in our house and in the upper house. And, you know, that, that power to, and that, you know, knowledge that we have and experience that we have that we can take forward. And, you know, if we need to have discussions with ministers or make proposals or representations or submissions or just keeping an eye out for things, we, we've got to, obviously, we look at through things with a slightly different lens. We can pick up uh, unintended consequences that may affect hunters or shooters in any potential drafting of legislation. So, you know, we're, we're always onto that, alert to that. And, and you know, specific, specifically in relation to firearms or, or game management or national parks, or you know, you've got to really look at some of the detail and the unintended consequences and look at perhaps not what's in the bill, but what, what could happen if that legislation is passed, how it's going to affect a lot of those different groups and users and um, things that, you know, so it's, you've got to be vigilant always. We've got to be constantly vigilant because they're always trying to, some way, form or another, um, clamp down on us. So we need members of parliament that have a understanding of hunting and appreciation of hunting, shooting, um, fishing, outdoors, all those things that we want to preserve as a way of life that we're lucky to have here in Australia. Most definitely and summed up extremely well. So if you uh, haven't, if you're in Orange and or you know someone in Orange, spread the word. Let's spread get Phil word. back in there. He's a good <laughs> bloke and uh, we know he's going to be sticking up for what we do because he's one of us. So, mate, we really appreciate your time, especially Thanks, in uh, in coming up to the election and all these additional things that you've got to do to try and get reelected. And, mate, we wish you all the best and hope you do because um, you're a great guy and we've really thoroughly enjoyed talking to you tonight. No worries, Matt and Dodge. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for reaching out uh, and getting me on the show. And uh, it's great that you guys are doing as well, having this podcast and having it available for, for like-minded people to be able to tune in and listen to and, um, you know, hear stories from different people, different perspectives and all that sort of stuff. It's, 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 it's great that you guys have this platform to be able to do that. So congratulations and well done. If ever, you know, hopefully I'm a re-elected uh, Get you guys to come and see me in Parliament House. Be great to catch up and meet in person. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'll take care of that. Certainly, definitely do that. Bring Keith with you as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do. I will do. You cook? Are you cooking uh, some pastries for us and cannolis? Or <laughs> Beautiful. George will be there. You'll never leave. <laughs> appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> appreciate the time, Phil. It's been a great night. No, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. All the best. All right, guys, it's been a good one and hope you appreciate it and bye for now. See you guys. See ya. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is theendlesspursuitpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.